2: Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you. Thank you so much for hanging out. Really appreciate the chance to chill with you today. Actually, a really nice day here in NYC. Hopefully nice wherever you are across the country and in some cases around the world. Big news today. Huge. Big news. Uh, You've got two competing narratives of what the main story today should be, depending on which website you're on or where you go. There, on the one hand, are those who are focusing on uh, the president's executive orders. Which, so far, so good, right? Let's be honest about this. The president is going to, uh, is signing an executive order to build a wall on the southern border. This This is what's being reported. The two biggies, the two big ones here are... signing uh, signing the executive order for building a wall on the southern border and banning people from Syria and six other Muslim-majority countries where there is a preponderance of terrorism or there's long-standing uh, terrorist threat. He is directing funds to construct a wall on the southern border. He is going to target sanctuary cities. That are refusing to comply with federal immigration law. He is going to institute a four-month halt on admissions of refugees. And the countries, by the way, are Syria, Iraq, Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Yemen. Those are the countries that would be covered under this temporary halt. Not a ban, per se, but a hiatus. That's a proper way of putting it, I think. And he plans to grant exceptions to Christians and other minorities fleeing from persecution. So if you are an Iraqi Christian in fear of your life, he says you may be able to come. This is what's being reported. All of these are things that Donald Trump said that he would do. All of these are policies that he promised to enact He's not wasting time, he's getting right to it. Now, there are questions about the logistics of all of this, of course. You know, Congress already passed a bill to build a border wall on our southern border. That's been in existence for quite some time. It just didn't happen. It hasn't happened yet. You have to ask the question, why? Why does Congress pass laws and then there is no action? Why does Congress leave laws in place about immigration and yet nobody enforces those laws? How can we have a system where you have millions of people who are in violation of federal law and the federal government's not going to care and not going to do much, if anything, about it? These are all worthwhile questions to ask. It's part of what propelled Trump to the front of the Republican pack. Trump had said he would do these things, and now he's at least taking the preliminary steps to implement them, to put them into place. The left is going to—they've already lost their minds. I don't know what the next level is for them. They really couldn't hate this administration any more than they do. And when he starts to hold to promises that he made to his base—remember, one of the big criticisms of Trump from the campaign— Was that Donald Trump would betray the movement, his own movement, really, that Donald Trump was a liar. He couldn't be trusted, would never build the wall, would never do the things he was saying he would do on the campaign trail. It was all supposed to be a con. Now, it's too early to say that's not true, but it's not too early to say it doesn't look like that will be the case. Doesn't look like it. As I've said to you, what motivation would Donald Trump have to betray those who voted for him at this? He's already very, very wealthy. Yeah, sure. He likes more money. All wealthy people generally want more money, even when they never have to think about money in a real sense. I don't know why there's this assumption that he's so easy to buy off and Russia has all this leverage. If I were worth a billion dollars and I loved my country, I mean, if I were worth 0 dollars and I love my country. I would never even think of hedging, forget about betraying, but hedging in favor of foreign interests or refusing to put my country first. And if ooh, there it is again. My country first. It sounds kind of like America first. And yet that isn't it isn't isn't it fascinating that that as a phrase has been uh, created as a or has been made radioactive because of what was done in the 1940s yet how else do you say it if you put American interests and the citizens of this country above the citizens of other other countries is there a better way to say it I just mean in terms of the verbiage the actual language a better way to say it than America first America primary America premier America number one I mean you start to go down the list America first says it and it doesn't have to have any connection To a political movement in the past. And certainly Donald Trump is not a non-interventionist pacifist. So you start right there and there's a digression, a diversion from the initial America firsters. But here we are, Trump doing what he said he would do. I, I want to see how both conservatives and Democrats react to this. There is an opportunity here for him to do tremendous good. I can tell you this. Every person that I have talked to, political, non-political, doesn't matter. Everyone that I have talked to that I think knows anything about commerce, business and the economy in a meaningful sense, someone who can read a 10K statement, somebody who understands a balance sheet, somebody who has had a profit and loss statement who has employees or has been an employee of a corporation where you either make money or you close your doors. Everybody I know in that context, and I'm here in New York City, a lot of commerce going on here. Commerce, baby. Everyone that I know in that position says that Trump's corporate tax cut plan will be an enormous boon to the economy. Every single person I've talked to, including some lefties, That are in business, not lefties that uh, work for the government or are university adjunct professors or are talking heads at MSNBC or the Young Turks or something. I don't care what they think about the corporate tax rate because they just frankly don't know. And they're too ideologically invested against corporations, which are evil. I don't know. Corporations make vaccines, automobiles, air conditioners. I rather like corporations. But everyone that I have talked to says that the corporate tax rate cut. And it's not the kind of thing that necessarily gets everyone fired up. It's not sexy. You don't have throngs gathered around you. It's like, and I will lower the corporate tax rate. Everyone goes, yeah. But you know what? Maybe they should. These are good things that are being done by the White House. And we should be very open and forthright about that. Just because Trump does it doesn't mean that any conservative should feel like they have to oppose it or even be overly skeptical. Yeah, trust but verify. I get that. But what among the executive orders that he's putting into place right now is troubling? As a conservative, I can see on the national security side, we have to wait to find out which of the executive orders of national security Trump really does sign, does put into effect. I've seen reporting, and it's early, that he may bring back some aspects of what the intelligence community was doing in the war on terror, including enhanced interrogation techniques. That's an interesting debate, interesting discussion to be had. But he wants to take a very tough line against jihadists and radical Islam, so we know where he's coming from on that. At least he won't be afraid to say radical Islamic terrorism. We can start from knowing whom the enemy is. It's a good start. It's important. But I see him doing all these things, and I think to myself, if he continues on this pathway, he could be a very successful president. Now I know there are pitfalls, and there will be, there will be people in Congress. There will be representatives who balk. There will be Democrats who try to find ways to sabotage this whole process. The media is, of course, going to try to convince as much of the country as possible that Trump is just trying to drown us all in a giant bathtub. I mean, that he is just a monster and they're not going to stop. They've already told us who they are. We know what the media thinks of Trump. Not going to change. But as I said to you, he's in a very unique position, not just because he's the commander in chief and leader of the free world, but because he's a man who... He's already lived quite a life, has a lot of money. None of his children will ever have to worry about money. He can't really be bought. I know every we've all been convinced for some reason that he can, but it's one thing when you're a businessman and you're just chasing money and you want whatever you can get for your company. It's really then capitalism can be a bit rapacious. A little Darwinian but he's now the commander-in-chief. He's the head of the U.S. Armed Forces. He's the chief executive of the United States government. I, I don't think he's going to... For what? You've got these people bringing a lawsuit against him under the Emoluments Clause. Donald Trump is going to change his Russia policy because the Russian government is going to give him more favorable rates for the ho- hotel occupancy tax? What are they really going to do? I mean, they'd have to make it very obvious for anybody to care, for it to be enough money to, to matter. We are being conned by the media. They're not being honest brokers in this. They're not trying to just bring us the truth. They are pushing a very clear agenda. And yeah, I say the media minus Fox and a few other places, but it is a vast majority of them. They are all on the same page. They're all playing for the same team. And they don't care to even analyze the executive orders that Trump is doing. They just Trump is bad. Trump is evil. They hate Trump. They want to get rid of Trump. That's it. And, you know, I was skeptical. Despite having been friends with his daughter and thinking the Trumps were a nice family, knowing uh, the, the sons growing up, not that well, but I knew the daughter quite well. I was skeptical of his ability to win. And I was worried that this was all an ego trip, but he saw it through the end and he beat Hillary Clinton. And you know what? The nation does owe him a debt of gratitude for preventing a president, Hillary Clinton, from taking office. I really do believe that. Now, that's not enough to push through on everything. That's not enough for him to just sort of sit back and rest on his laurels. But he is taking actions that we would want him to take. What could be more important in a president than that? I know there are the petty squabbles. We'll talk about. The other big story, which I didn't even get a chance to hit on. I thought I would in this opening. The other big story is the investigation into voter fraud. I want to say something about this, and we'll hit it more on the flip side of the break. What if Trump is off? But what if voter fraud is pretty bad? What if it's hundreds of thousands of votes? meaning hundreds of thousands of illegals in a with 120 million plus votes cast. No one thinks that 100,000 or 200,000 illegals voted in this country. I don't know. And let's be clear. Nobody knows because the government doesn't want to look into this. They want to do all these models on climate change and drastically alter the economy and make us poorer and slow down growth and innovation because there's too much CO2 in the air and we're all going to melt and die. The government will spend a lot of money on that, but they don't want to look into voter fraud. They want to turn a blind eye to anything that's going on with voter fraud. We know that there's been fraud in elections in the past that cost people the election. We know there are some isolated cases of voter fraud that are prosecuted. And we know that the Democrats, at every single opportunity, try to make it impossible to prevent and prosecute voter fraud. Because how do you know if somebody just shows up? Yeah, I'm Bob. I'm voting. Don't have to show any ID. Just say they're Bob. They vote. What are we going to do? How would we know? All right. Let's talk more about this on the other side of the break. Because you got CNN.com writing despite no evidence, Trump wants voter fraud investigation. You know what's funny about investigations? They're usually to find evidence. Be right back. Rex Sexton, The
3: Blaze Radio Network
2: I think for anybody who is an analyst of the news, of politics, of national security, whenever, you, whenever you're whenever you dealing with the Trump administration and what they've said about something, have to do a little introspection, step back and think for a second. This looks like they're going to lose. This looks like it's going to be bad for them. But how many times has that been the case in the past and it wasn't true? Meaning we thought that they were finally going to get hammered by the Democrats, and public opinion would turn against them. You see that more than half of those polled liked Trump's inaugural address. I I thought it was supposed to be the worst speech given since Mussolini decided to call it quits. Well, actually, people decided to call it quits for Mussolini, but that's a story for another day. I thought it was supposed to be worthy of Attila the Hun. And yet, more than half of Americans polled. Now... Are we obsessed with polls? Only when they hurt Trump. If you're in the media, when they further the Trump narrative or they help the Trump administration in some capacity, then you want to ignore them. Then you don't care. You don't like them. Polls are bad. Trump is picking a fight now, or maybe you could say the media has picked a fight with Trump over the number of illegal uh, illegal votes that were cast in this past election. I don't think it is a mistake that it would be more or less the margin of victory for Hillary Clinton in the popular vote. That may be clouding the analysis from the Trump team at some level. I don't know. Sean Spicer has been forced to stand up and defend this number of three to five million. You've got Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, saying there's no evidence of Trump's claim. Well, there's no proof of three to five million, but there's also no way to prove much of anything because no one's looked into it and there are very few safeguards in place. Do I think three to five million people voted illegally in the election? Probably not. I would put my confidence in that. I would put my confidence in that number at low to very low if I were in the intelligence community. Do I think that 100,000 people voted illegally across the country? If you really looked into it, everywhere, maybe. Do I think 10,000? That's, yeah, that sounds. And now you say, Buck, come on, 10,000 out of 120 million votes cast. Look at the margin of victory in Wisconsin. Look at the margin of victory in Michigan. I know more than 10,000, but not that much more. And even if it's only 10,000 this time, we need to prevent it from being 100,000 the next time. So why if our if our I know it's a republic and people love to say it's not a democracy. Yeah, yeah, I know. But we refer to America as a democracy. So everyone needs to chill. It is a republic. I get that. But our, our system is based on democratic norms. How about that? All right. <laughs> Do a little poli sci 101 here. Undermining our institutions is supposed to be a, an unpatriotic and horrible thing. And we should have bipartisan love and support for these institutions of the peaceful transfer of power, of representative government based upon clearly established rules and an independent judiciary, yada, yada, et cetera, et cetera. Isn't knowing whether people are voting illegally in large numbers or not important enough for us to care? Isn't it something that we should pay some attention to at some level? Maybe. Do I think that it's wise for Trump to put out the three to five million number before he can prove it? I don't think it's wise. Do I think that Trump would care that I think it's unwise because many things that others have said were unwise for him to do turned out to work in his favor? Yeah, I think all that's true, too. We need to keep a very close eye on all of this. The Democrats were really of the mindset That after eight years of Obama, they'd have eight years of Clinton, and it was all over. They thought we were a one-party state. The Democrats had won. Progressive ideology would reign supreme, and it was all over, folks. Not the case. And now they are being fly-kicked by reality, Chuck Norris roundhouse style. They don't like it, and they can't really stop it. They can whine a lot. They can complain. They can lie. They can try to cheat in the court of public opinion, but not much they can do while Trump is using his executive order pen. And there's a lot more coming, I think, just like on this show, team, much more coming. Stay with me through the break. Back in just a few minutes.
0: The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: So the administration in its last days did some, the former administration, ooh, can we just air that one out for a second? The former presidency of Barack Obama, the the old, now past, and no longer presidency of Barack Obama. It's done. It is done. Don't have to cover State of the Union addresses where Obama sets up lots of straw men and just destroys them makes arguments the other side don't make acts like this is just a simple issue of are you a are you a good person or not if you're a good person you're going to agree with Obama of course if, if not you're a bad person Ooh, bad person that's done with something we should all take a moment to celebrate it's I don't know if you consider that a smart a small or a large victory but at whatever level you consider it, it's a victory nonetheless victory for limited government, for liberty, for the sanity of those of us who refuse to buy into the cult of personality. You'll notice Trump is in office, and sure, there are super Trumpers for whom Trump can do no wrong. But for a vast majority of the Republican uh, Republicans who voted for him, it's based on everything that I've seen and everyone I talk to. And Anecdotal, I know, so not scientifically based, but They just want him to do a good job. They don't all sit around saying that he's the greatest president of all time. They don't all sit around saying that he's a genius and he's infallible. All of that, by the way, was so damaging with Obama because it also meant that the people weren't on guard for the usurpation of their liberties. The people were not on guard for the overextension of the executive branch. They were lulled into a false sense of Obama's the best. We don't need to worry about anything. It's all going to be fine. They were lulled into that. And now we see that when the shoe is on the other foot, they freak out to the point of their hypocrisy being absolutely brazen. The hypocrisy is mind-blowing. It is mind-numbing. It's just too much. What was okay for Obama to do is bad for Trump to do just because Obama good, Trump bad. That's all it comes down to in their minds. And I'm talking about seasoned political journalists. I'm just talking about randos walking around on the street. But Obama on the way out showed us some things. He showed us that he does not uh, believe that the state of Israel is in a constant state of siege because of Hamas and surrounding extremists and the attitude that is prevalent in much of that neighborhood of the Muslim world, that Israel is a should be a pariah state among nations and should be surrounded and choked off and eventually destroyed. He seems to think the Israelis are, are the ones causing the problem. And the problem I know there is very broadly defined, but... If I start talking Arab-Israeli or Israeli-Palestinian conflict, people refer to it both ways, uh, we won't get into any of the rest of what I want to talk about. But alas, here we are with just a parting a parting shot. We know that he refused to stand up for Israel at the United Nations and didn't veto the resolution that says that Israel settlements are illegal and, and that language that was passed that was damaging to the state of Israel, makes them look bad, and shows that Obama all along was really lying when he said that he had Israel's back. He wasn't somebody who was ideologically aligned with the best interests of the Jewish state. He sees them as antagonists, and I would bet, I would wager, in in a private moment, Obama would even say that he thinks they are oppressors against the Palestinian people just as he thinks that the Castro regime is uh, misunderstood or the Castro regime is yeah, something that we should work more closely with. The State Department, while Obama was in his last days, under John Kerry, sent $220 million to the Palestinians late last week, despite objections from congressional Republicans. Now, because the State Department is... Under different leadership. There's going to be a look at that payment and there could be adjustments. The Trump administration may decide to tweak some of this. So Obama went beyond congressional oversight here and released $221 million to Palestinian territories uh, because that's one of the last things he wanted to make sure he did when he was in office was to shower some taxpayer cash on states and on really a culture now, in certainly in Gaza, and it exists in the West Bank too, of the celebration of death, of martyrdom. That hasn't changed. The existence of the Israeli state is not something that Hamas has accepted, and not at all. And we're told that the, we keep hearing about East Jerusalem as, as a sticking point and the Israelis are going to expand settlements in East Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city, and I've been in both sides of this city they talk about, and they are building some apartments on the, in the eastern part of the city. These are the settlements that they're talking about. And no one is suggesting, or no one seriously, I would hope, suggest that Jerusalem be divided down the, the center and, and cut in half like a la Berlin during the Cold War. I don't think that's what the answer is going to be. And the restrictions that are put on the Israeli state by the international community about this are onerous for the Israelis to deal with, at least in the context of Jerusalem. I mean, you want to talk about hilltop settlements or outposts as opposed to settlements. That's a, a different discussion. It's part of this discussion, but it's a different aspect of it. And... Jerusalem as Israel's capital if Trump moves the embassy to Jerusalem why do we have to obey these mandates that have been there in the past doesn't a new administration get to determine policy didn't Obama upend decades of foreign policy vis-a-vis Cuba It was, my objection to what Obama did with Cuba isn't that he changed things he promised a lot of hope and change my objection was that I didn't think that he had achieved anything by changing it, and he had traded away a lot in the process. Didn't get any concessions from the Cuban government, just decided to release the pressure. Took them out of the chokehold without, without making them tap out first. It's not the way it's supposed to go. So I objected to the substance of what Obama did, not just, oh, well, it's different. And with Trump, you're going to see a lot of playing both sides on this. When he changes things, it's going to be reckless. When he continues with policies, it's going to be because he's either not sticking to his word or he is not nuanced enough in his understanding of the issue. He'll get criticized on all of this no matter what. Moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem is something the Trump administration says they are going to do. Uh, or at least some of the members of the Trump administration say they're going to do. And that's really up to us in Israel. doesn't really matter all that much what the rest of the world thinks of this. That is another exposed aspect of the media now. I should note that. You're seeing that it's not enough for them just to rely on the progressive left viewership and readership that they have that hates Trump. They also want to reflect what they consider to be this global, dare I say, globalist view, and that's another means of increasing pressure on the Trump administration, is to say that the rest of the world disagrees with you on this. The rest of the world doesn't like what you're doing here. Hmm. Do we care? Should we care? Those are questions for which Trump, I think, has very different answers than certainly his predecessor, but really any president in my lifetime. Or at least that I can remember. I think we will make deals with individual countries. We will look at our interests. We will look at their interests, and we will go from there. It's not going to be driven by some nonsensical, unrealistic view of a world that is really all playing by the same rules, that all wants to be under the same government. That's not how Trump's going to do things. Is it going to work? Oh, we'll see. But I do think that thus far, there's plenty of reason to believe that there can be some really good things coming from this administration, and we should encourage them when they're good, and we should condemn them when they're bad. That is my plan for all of this. My other plan is to tell you about our sponsor this hour, SilencerShop.com. They have the best buying experience you can get, period. You can trust Silencer.com to handle the paperwork quickly for your suppressor, since they submit more forms than anybody in the country by a huge margin. Silencer Shop offers the best prices along with the best service. And when you purchase a silencer from silencershop.com, you simply pick it up at a local dealer with no transfer fees and no shipping. A silencer is a must-have accessory for your firearm. It makes shooting more enjoyable. It reduces the blast to a much more comfortable level. And buying from silencershop.com is just like buying local since your local dealer is setting the price and making the profit. Now you can get the best price and know you're supporting your local business. So check it out, team, silencershop.com. Again, that is silencershop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show.
0: On the Blaze Radio Network.
2: So Sean Spicer was asked about Trump's voter fraud claim, and this is how he responded. Play it. Does
0: the president believe that millions voted illegally in this election and what evidence do you have of widespread voter fraud in this election, if that's the case?
4: The president does believe that. He has stated that before. I think he stated his concerns, uh, voter fraud and, and people voting illegally during the campaign. And he continues to maintain that belief based on studies and evidence that people have presented to him.
2: They may be pushed a little more to give some of those studies and evidence, uh, a little bit of a public hearing, they may receive pushback. Well, they will definitely receive pushback from the press corps, but even some Republicans, I think, are going to say that they would like, they would like to see um, what Donald Trump's getting, where he's getting these numbers from. But as I've said to you, and we have had experts on the show to discuss it, there's not a whole lot of, mechanisms in place that are meant to look at voter fraud. So it would be very, very difficult for anyone to know the extent of any actual voter fraud that is occurring. And Democrats fight tooth and nail against the most basic measures to ensure that voting is happening the way it's supposed to, within legal boundaries. They don't want any boundaries at all they wanted to just be you show up and you vote you show up and vote and i know that you can start to argue this well why would anybody vote illegally people do <laughs> i don't really know what to say other than that people do and certainly if you believed enough in a cause to show up and march in dc and act like in many cases a maniac And yell at strangers that you don't know because you disagree with them politically, want them to be ridiculed, to be pushed out of the public square, to be fired from their jobs. If you believe so much in the Democratic Party that that's how you feel, really that hard to think you'd go in when you know there's a one in a million chance you're going to get caught and punished. You go in and cast a vote when you're either voting in the wrong place you know in the wrong uh, in the wrong state or you're casting more than one vote or you're casting a vote for a dead person. There are a lot of dead people on the voting rolls still, so we know that's an issue. And I just hope that the Trump administration isn't taking us down a rabbit hole here with nothing be- with nothing else going on because media is just going to use this as the story to shout down everything else that they're doing. Every time Trump takes an action, pushes for an executive order, gives a speech, not pushes for, just does an executive order, but gives a speech about business, about revitalizing manufacturing and other sectors of the American economy. You you see the the news, by the way, today on the financial sites, on the Wall Street Journal, other places. The Dow index vaults over the 20,000 milestone. Markets doing great. Market is doing very well. Of course, the night when Hillary was losing had people like Paul Krugman, oh, the stock market has spoken. They hate Trump. No. Now, of course, the stock market doesn't matter. This is what I mean about the hypocrisy. It's so blatant that you'd laugh if it wasn't about very serious issues. So we shall have to see where this investigation, this, quote, major investigation into voter fraud ends up going. We shall have to see if they're able to produce some evidence. They don't have to, this is my position on this. They don't have to show that 3 million people voted illegally, but if they can just show substantial numbers, period, voted illegally, it'll change the whole conversation. And granted, they don't have the hard evidence yet on this, but no one's ever really looked for the evidence either. So I don't know. And I think we should all know. I think that's a fair way to put it i think we have a right to know because we're all going and spending our time and voting and we have to respect this process because we believe the process is is free and fair we should know if it's a fair process we should be allowed to know what's really happening here with the voting and i uh, i just wonder if if trump knows something or if someone's whispered something in his ear that i that i don't know because if they don't find anything you're going to hear a lot about this for the media for the next few years. Oh, Trump just lies. He gets things wrong and it's going to get in the way of some of the good stuff he could do. The Doc More coming.
5: Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze
0: Radio Network.
2: All right, team. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut. We're joined by our friend Charles Cook. He is editor for National Review Online. He's the author of the Conservatarian Manifesto at Charles C.W. Cook with an E at the end of Cook on Twitter. Mr. Charles, good to have you, sir.
6: Good to be here. How are you?
2: Good, man. I'm good. Thank you. Uh, Let's talk about a few things. A lot going on in the news. Wanted to start uh, with your piece, just because I feel like I didn't get a chance to talk about this when it happened, and so now I can revisit it. No, of course you can't punch Nazis in the face. You know that, Charles, I know that, and everyone listening knows that, but there are some so-called luminaries on the left who seem to think that there's a real debate, a real discussion to be had about whether punching Richard Spencer, the alt-right, uh, whatever we want to call alt-right guy in the face, has happened on video might just be okay there were otherwise serious people that were advancing that narrative or at least pondering it
6: there were and then even the new york times presented it as if it was a real debate a real moral quandary that we had to struggle through together just as uh, supporting uh, the right to a trial and the presumption of uh, innocence uh, does not mean that one is siding with or supporting murderers and rapists. Uh, defending uh, the speech rights and the physical rights of uh, an awful person such as uh, Richard Spencer does not mean that I'm sympathizing with Nazis. Unfortunately, uh, many on the left seem not to be able to grasp this distinction. The fact is, uh, Richard Spencer is an American citizen he has views that i find utterly abhorrent he finds views that i consider to be inimical to the american order uh, but the government cannot silence him simply because his opinions are ugly uh, and nor can private citizens uh, punch him assault him batter him uh, in any way at least uh, without being punished for it And i think even uh, over and above the legal point is the moral point here uh, that we should not strive toward a culture uh, in which people take it upon themselves to decide whose opinions uh, are sufficiently ugly uh, that they would lose the protection of civilization uh, and uh, of society. Uh, We can do this all day. If the argument in favor of punching Richard Spencer in the face uh, is that the views he holds uh, are dangerous, well then... uh, Why can I not punch uh, a communist in the face? Why can I not punch Angela Davis in the face? Why can I not indeed uh, punch uh, a radical Muslim uh, in the face? Uh, And how far do we take it? I happen to believe people who want to impose hate speech laws in the United States are dangerous. I uh, happen to believe those who want to repeal the Second Amendment are dangerous. I believe many of the people on college campuses who have no respect whatsoever for due process uh, are dangerous. Uh, should I uh, be given some sort of open season on them? The answer, of course, is no. That's not how civilized, enlightened societies work. Uh, we do not uh, fight illiberalism with illiberalism, uh, and we don't prove our anti-fascist credentials by behaving uh, like fascists.
2: I think there was a a rise in the effort uh, with the, with the media. Uh, to and you saw a lot of this in the in the rhetoric used by anti-Trump protesters too, to link feeling unsafe because of somebody's rhetoric with them being an imminent threat to you so th- then all of a sudden it becomes well th- your words are so incendiary and your words are so damaging and hurtful that I feel unsafe or this was a lot of the anti-Trump protesters and a lot of the the anti-trump movement both before and and even more so after the election seem to rely on this formulation i think that that is dangerous because once you start to take the position that words create uh words create reasonable fear words meaning just ideological positions not not actual threats and not incitement to violence Then you then you all of a sudden make a very short leap instead of a very large leap to, well, this person is threatening me. I'm unsafe because of their beliefs. Therefore, I must stop them from threatening me. And this is where I think you get people punching people in the face because they don't like what they say.
6: And this is, of course, the trick in most countries in the world. There are such uh, things as hate speech laws. Now, America doesn't have that. Uh, America has never gone down that road. The First Amendment prohibits it. Uh, But the rationale for hate speech laws is that speech can be violence, or at least that speech can be equated with violence. Uh, In America, uh, the test is very different. Under the 1969 Supreme Court case in Brandenburg v. Ohio, speech is really held to be sacrosanct and protected, uh, except in an extraordinarily narrow circumstance. And that circumstance Uh, is if somebody is inciting imminent uh, violence or law-breaking. And the imminent line uh, is is an important one because uh, people saying things that make you feel unsafe, people saying rude things about you, uh, that doesn't count. Uh, For example, if I were to say on your radio show, uh, this is, of course, hypothetical, if I were to say on your radio show that I think the U.S. government should be overthrown, that would be protected under Brandenburg. If I were to say... Uh, Buck, uh, I think the people who are listening should go out tomorrow and try and overthrow the government. We'll meet at 7 a.m. at this address. We'll bring our firearms. Well, that's a little different. That is uh, incitement. Uh, Richard Spencer is an extremely unpleasant individual, but he was not inciting anybody. He didn't actually say anything. He was punched for uh, who he is, for what he believes. Uh, And in a sense, that's a sort of thought crime. Uh, Had he got up on a podium uh, and said to the assembled crowd, uh, go and kill that person or this person is Jewish or black, I think we should beat them up now. Well, then he would have been uh, both uh, prosecutable, most likely under the law. And also you can make a case for self-defense, but simply being there, simply walking around. Uh, simply holding his views uh, or even expressing them in the abstract, that's not good enough. Uh, And I don't want us as a country to get into uh, a mindset that if you are uh, threatened by somebody, uh, uh, by their abstract uh, ideals, uh, that that is the same as being physically assaulted. It's not.
2: Charles, I also want to ask you about your piece uh, on nationalview.com, Constitutional Carry Marches On. Where, where does constitutional carry stand? Bring us up to speed on all this.
6: Well, it really has been a, a remarkable uh, last few years. In 1990, there was one state uh, that uh, had no permitting system for concealed carriers, and that was Vermont. Uh, not because Vermont is uh, especially uh, conservative, although it is in some ways, uh, but because the original state... Uh, Uh, right to keep and bear arms, had been interpreted to prohibit any laws at all, effectively. If you look through the books in Vermont, you'll find pretty much nothing uh, because of that decision. Uh, So they just never put in a permitting system. It was a quirk. Uh, But this idea, sometimes called constitutional carry, sometimes called Vermont carry, uh, has spread. Uh, Montana has a, a version of it, not quite full constitutional carry that they put in in 1991 Uh, and then a few states uh, began to add their names to the list Uh, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas Um, and it's starting to increase uh, remarkably quickly Uh, last year we saw West Virginia and we saw Missouri Uh, and 2015 we saw Maine Um, you know there are now 12 constitutional carry states. By the end of this year, there are probably going to be 16. I identify three, four, five, six more, I think uh, may go by the end of uh, this decade. Uh, if you look at the increase both in land uh, that is now governed by constitutional carry uh, government uh, and uh, people, uh, in the case of land, uh, we've gone from one quarter of a percent of the entire land mass of the United States uh, to 42% in 25 years uh, and in terms of people uh, we've gone from you know, a quarter of a percent again of the population uh, to uh, 18% uh, of the people uh, it seems entirely possible uh, that by the end of this year alone one half of uh, all of the American landmass will be governed by uh, governments that have a constitutional carry approach to gun ownership that's a remarkable change
2: do you think that Trump is going to be helpful on this issue? Uh, do you think that a Trump presidency is, for Second Amendment supporters, going to be uh, quite successful?
6: That's a good question. I mean, most of the energy for this, or all of the energy, in fact, has come from the states. States, and, uh, yeah. One thing Barack Obama did uh, is wipe out his own party. I mean, he really was the only beneficiary of the Obama movement. His own party at all levels has been decimated. Uh, So, you know, just as with with right to work, the states have led this fight, not the president and not Congress. Um, I think in some regards, uh, he'll probably be good for Second Amendment advocates. But really, the energy here comes from below. I mean, there's a reason uh, why Barack Obama was unable to get any of his gun items through, and that is that they're unpopular. Uh, I know progressives think that the NRA is this pernicious organization that slips lawmakers, you know, brown paper bags full of uh, uh, money. But that's not why Congress votes the way it does. It's not why the states uh, have the laws they have. Uh, The reason for that is the Second Amendment is popular and people tend to agree with the NRA. So uh, around the edges, perhaps Trump will uh, help, but Trump is more of a symptom uh, of a pro-gun culture in the United States than he is uh, the cause of anything.
2: And he says on Twitter, which now feels more and more like it's an official, uh, an official state announcement, like he's speaking, he's speaking from, uh, from behind the podium in the in the West Wing or something, or in the White House. Uh, I'll be making my Supreme Court pick on Thursday of next week. That was from earlier today uh do you think this is going to make a lot of conservatives happy are you expecting a good pick
6: yes i am i am as you know i'm something of a critic of trump's but this is one area i think he'll probably get it right of course there'll then be an enormous fight in the senate because the filibuster still obtains for supreme court appointments Uh, we'll see how the democratic senators in states that are up in 2018 vote uh you know if you look at uh, heidi heitkamp In North Dakota, Claire McCaskill uh, in Missouri, uh, Tester out in Montana, you know, the uh, uh, Joe Manchin in West Virginia. It's possible that Republicans will get to 60 without a fight, but they did block uh, Merrick Garland for a year. And I think Democrats will be quite upset about that. So we could be in for one hell of a Barney, the Irish say. Uh, Still, I think the nomination itself will be salutary from a conservative perspective.
2: Charles Cook is editor of National Review Online. He's also the author of The Conservative Manifesto, which you can get on Amazon.com. And uh, read his latest on NationalReview.com. Charles, thank you so much. Always good to have you, my friend. We appreciate you making the time.
6: Uh, Thank you for having me.
2: Uh, 888-900-3393, team. We've got a lot more coming. Stay with me.
0: Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Team, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Uh, Shamon do we have David Muir and... Uh, David Muir and Donald Trump uh, talking about the wall? Do we have that clip any chance? We do. All right, let's play it from ABC
5: News. Trump laying it down. I'm going to direct U.S. funds to pay for this wall. Will American taxpayers pay for the wall?
1: Uh, ultimately, it'll come out of what's happening with Mexico. We're going to be starting those negotiations relatively soon and we will be in a form reimbursed by Mexico, which I've always said. So they'll pay us back? Yeah, absolutely. One hundred percent,
5: So the American taxpayer will pay for the wallet first?
1: Uh, All it is, is we'll be reimbursed at a later date from whatever transaction we make from Mexico.
5: Mexico's president said in recent days that Mexico absolutely will not pay, adding that it goes against our dignity as a country and our dignity as Mexicans. He says, quite simply, they're not
1: paying. David, I think he has to say that. He has to say that. But I'm just telling you, there will be a payment. It will be in a form, perhaps a complicated form. And you have to understand, what I'm doing is good for the United States. It's also gonna be good for Mexico. We wanna have a very stable, very solid
5: Mexico. When does construction begin?
1: As soon as we can. As soon as we can physically do it, we're- uh, Within months? uh, I would say in months, yeah. I would say in months. Certainly planning is starting immediately.
2: If he starts building this wall, I got to say, it's just going to cause such an upheaval in the way that people have been talking about this for quite a while. And look, I didn't think that he was going to go right ahead and build the wall quickly. I thought maybe it would be a little piece here, a little piece there. And that's it will be in that form in terms of the actual construction. But I mean, they were going to take it as a piecemeal issue. Maybe that will still happen, but that it would take quite a while to get it all going. He's saying within a few months and Mexico may pay for it. Of course, that's symbolic. The the, uh, largely symbolic. The estimates that I've seen are that the border wall would cost about 14 billion dollars, which sounds like a lot of money until you realize that Medicare and Medicaid loses 60 to 80, uh, 60 to 80 billion dollars a year in fraud, I think, is the let me make sure I have that number right. Um, Medicare fraud, because uh, I, I hate, I hate getting that wrong. Medicare fraud estimate, I think it's sixty to eighty billion dollars. Let's see what we have on this one. Am I am I crazy? Am I? Yep, sixty billion dollars. Bam. Even when I think I'm wrong, I am not. So uh, yeah, Medicare loses sixty billion dollars a year. So fourteen billion dollars for a wall, when you put it in that context, certainly does not look quite as um, quite as Intense as a price of a price tag. So uh, Trump says he's going to do that. And he might, in fact, make that happen, which hmm. Mexico paying for it isn't is more of a symbolic issue, as I said, than a a budgetary or financial issue, although 14 billion dollars really for anybody is a lot of money, I think. Uh, And he may go forward with this. This is uh, this is going to put quite a shock into the. DC into the into the Beltway insider community. And I didn't I'm gonna be honest with you, I didn't think he was really gonna go forward with this one quickly. Now it hasn't happened and there may this is this is part of this too. I don't wanna get ahead of myself. I don't wanna get ahead of my skis here. Even though I've never been skiing, you know that? Isn't that just isn't that just outrageous? Um by the way, I love Charles Cook. He's a great guy, a brilliant guy. But I feel like every time we finish the interview, he's kinda like his his goodbye is not it's not like the big with big hug that we all Team Buck is giving Charles like I feel like he's a little he's a little apathetic when he says goodbye it makes me a little sad cuz I think Charles is the greatest. Uh it's just a British thing I know but anyway I digress. He's always like yeah thanks for having me but he says it in that British way, you know. Uh British accent's a huge advantage in life, ladies, business, everything. All right, back to uh but then there's also the, the David Muir effect which is just you're super handsome and people, therefore, not only want to make you rich and famous, but imbue you with gravitas based on nothing. Just because you're, you're like this handsome guy. Man, oh man, to have won the genetic lottery. Maybe I'll come back in another life. Uh, where were we? On the wall? Yeah, the wall is going to get built, it looks like. Oh, by the way, Ted Cruz won Twitter last night. Uh, Ted Cruz in an exchange. I'm trying to find the exchange right now. If you didn't see it, it's with Deadspin, and it is awesome. It's really funny what Ted Cruz did, and that's something that uh, Cruz could have used more of. Um, I think he really could have used a little more levity in his campaign and his persona. I know people say, Buck, that's not what he's about, but it's politics, and people like that stuff. So Deadspin, I don't even know how this happened, but they said, send us proof of Ted Cruz playing basketball. And he sent this photo of a Duke player that looks so much like Ted Cruz, it's crazy. And he tweeted out, What do I win? And then Deadspin responded to him, go eat doo-doo, except they didn't say Doo Doo, they said something else. And then Ted Cruz pulled out Anchorman meme, boy that escalated quickly. I gotta say, props to Cruz on this one. I I could've Funny, Ted Cruz. But funny, self-deprecating Ted Cruz could win a national election. Really believe that. And I know that that's not about the substance and everything, but you know what pushes politics these days. It is persona. It is personality. It is connection with the voter. And this was hilarious. Go check it out on Ted Cruz's account.
5: This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network.
2: Team, I know there are a ton of dog lovers in this audience, and one of you reached out to ask me if we could book someone who's an expert on pit bulls because there's been some controversy recently surrounding this particular breed. And I know a lot of you have dogs, and almost all of you, maybe all of you, love dogs. So I wanted to bring somebody on to address some of this controversy. For example, the military... I uh, won't allow pits in military communities. Uh, there were two kids who were attacked recently by pit bulls walking to school, very seriously injured. Uh, children have been killed by pit bulls in the news. Uh, we have seen some communities, uh, living communities, whether apartment buildings or uh, housing areas where they won't allow pit bulls as a breed. Some veterinarians say never get a pit bull. If you plan to have kids, others say pit bulls are total sweethearts. What is true? What is false? well, We're joined by Dr. Nicholas Dodman. He's a world-renowned veterinary behaviorist and research scientist, and he's also a best-selling author. His latest book is Pets on the Couch, Neurotic Dogs, Compulsive Cats, Anxious Birds, and the New Science of Animal Psychiatry. Dr. Dodman, thank you so much for calling in. Hey, thanks for having me on. All right. So you heard some of uh, what we wanted to hit on today. First, let's just let's start with pit bulls and and work our way down the list of a lot of the the debates around uh, around this particular breed. Although it's not even a very well defined breed in many cases, and, and media coverage of it can be kind of sloppy when they talk about pit bulls. Are what we generally think of as pit bulls, based on the research and the science, more aggressive than other breeds of dog? Well, there is some
3: science. Um... Uh, a colleague of mine who I'm doing some research with uh, at the so-called Center for Canine Behavior Studies, uh, Dr. James Serpell from um, Pennsylvania uh, University of Philly. Um, He invented a behavioral score system called the C-Block Canine Behavior and Research Questionnaire. And I've asked him a question directly. I said, are pit bulls more aggressive than other breeds? And according to this Questionnaire, which um, now has about eleven thousand dogs in it, and a large number of pit bulls, they are not, according to this uh, study, um, any more aggressive to people than any other breed. You know, just looking at it, just numerically, they they don't turn out to be more aggressive than any other breed. However, they are significantly more aggressive than other breeds to other dogs. So. Huh. You know, you you can catch that a little bit. It's, uh, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt because there are pit bulls and there are pit bulls. And I, I think the first thing to say is that not not many people know what a pit bull is because you're right, their definition is kind of fuzzy. And when they banned them in my former country, England, um, police were running around arresting um, English bull terriers and uh, mastiffs and all kinds of dogs. They had no idea what a pit bull was and certainly not a pit bull cross. Um, And that confusion came across in that news that you just um, said about the, you know, a couple of pit bulls attacked these children. Uh, It came out um, of of an apology the next day that I'm afraid we got the breeds wrong. One was a border collie and the other was a pit mix, not a a pit bull. So nobody kind of knows what they are. A lot of times they've got the blame when it wasn't a pit bull. and, And that's been shown scientifically and published in the American veterinary medical association journal. Um, you know, so you you can actually make a good case for them not being bad players. Um, and it's true. Uh, I think one of my dogs has at least some pit in it, so I'm not you know, anti-pit, uh, but I'm realistic.
2: And They banned dogs. them in the UK? I didn't, I didn't know that. You mentioned a ban or was that just a partial ban?
3: No, it was total ban of actually three breeds. The, um, pit bull, uh, the, um, I think it was the Presa Canario, perhaps.
2: Yeah, Presa and, Canario, oh, no,
3: yeah. The, the, the Japanese Posa, which is like a 200-pound pit on steroids. And the other was um, a Brazilian feeler. Those three were banned as being more aggressive than other breeds. So, but on the good side, um, a lot of them are really sweet dogs, and people who own them will say, well, I have one, and he's a, a love bug, and there's a film going around now of an Instagram picture of a little baby lying on a pit bull's tummy in the pit bull's licking the baby and people call them the nanny dog. And you're right. People do say they're very sweet with children and they can be. But now if you move into the dog fighting uh, department, you know, they have them for a reason. It's because they're, you know, good dog fighters and we're somewhat bred for that in the pit fighting days. Um, but even so, those specialists, those people who like to fight dogs, Um, they divide them into two types. There's the the one they call game, and game means, you know, up for a fight. And then there's the other ones who are rather sort of sweet and docile, and I'm afraid they often use those as bait dogs to be attacked, just to give the other dog practice. And I see that myself, so in my practice I see really sweet pit bulls come in, they're really nice, and others um, to me look menacing, very large head, direct their tense body—they um, look a little bit like a, a giant tadpole with a huge head tapering down to little narrow hips—and I'm like, "Ooh, this could be a problem." And I, I get all kinds of horror shows: dogs, you know, snapped in half. Uh, one story was two—a lady walking had two dogs, and the pit bull attacked one and killed it, and then attacked the other one who was in the process of killing it. The lady tried to intervene, and she got killed, and, and all three of them died in the end—the two dogs and the lady—and. I've seen that type of thing several times. So maybe it's a real small minority of them, but you have to remember that they're very powerful dogs. Um, They're bred from bulldog and terrier. They used to call them bull and terrier in the early days. Uh, And they took the power and tenacity of the bulldog and its um, hanging on bite, because they were bred to, in those days to jump at a bull's nose in bull baiting and hang on while the bull Flick its head from side to side, the dog's hanging on and being spun around in the air. Tenacity, launch, aggression, determination, and they mixed it with the speed of a terrier. So if you're unlucky enough to get that sort of relatively pure, original uh, gene set um, for um, a pit bull, you can still, um, as a responsible owner, I would say it's not a breed for the novice, you can still make that dog very obedient to you, very well trained and safe. But if you have an inkling as a bad human being that either through um, purposefully or through not really understanding things, and the dog turns into be aggressive, if you've got a game dog, it can be uh, very dangerous.
2: I often now like analogy... so par- part of the ba- of the reputation they've developed then is a result just of the the bite is much more damaging. I mean, to make a a comparison. If someone's chihuahua becomes very aggressive, I have a friend who's a dog behavioralist here in New York, and she said she was dealing with the very aggressive Maltese at one point, and that almost sounded kind of funny to me until she said no, but it really around children, it'll bite their fingers, and it's but no no one's gonna die because the Maltese goes bad. With a pit bull, it's a very ser- it's a it's really like a weapon. It's a very serious uh, those jaws and that strength uh, the strength around them uh, can be lethal, right? So that that's also a part of this is that there's yes, just so a disparate impact of the bite.
3: Yeah, there was a 20-year study done of um, lethal dog bite attacks in the United States uh, several years ago. They, they looked at the preceding 20 years, and pit bull emerged as the number one dog responsible for lethal dog bite attacks. And, you know, that may be true, but the fact is, when you compare the number of people dying, you know, we've got 75 million dogs in the country and 300 million people, um, relatively speaking, very few deaths. Okay, so pit bulls are tipped as being you know, more represented in the, the, the lethal dog bite attacks. But when you look at the actual numbers, um, there are far more homicides. I mean, if you were to meet um, a strange, you know, say a pit bull on a dark night or a person on a dark night, you're much more likely to be injured or hurt or robbed or killed by the person than the dog. It's like 7,000 homicides per year versus 10 or 12 uh, deaths due to dog bites. But But it's a fact that, yeah, there are some bad players and people will say and there's some truth in that that you know there's no such thing as a bad dog just a bad owner and owners can really factor in and there are some bad dudes out there who will cultivate them for aggression and i had one of those a a woman in uh, rhode island who trained her dog to attack people's feet using a mannequin and every time the dog attacked and bit the feet it got rewarded and so i had a thing about feet and It attacked a 70-year-old woman and she managed to batter it off with a trash can lid because she was emptying the trash, but uh, she lost her leg and uh, changed her psyche and ruined the rest of her life. And that same dog had flown across the road to attack a dog, a little dog, and the man picked up the little dog and the pit bull flew at the little dog in his arms. The man was so upset he had a heart attack and died. So that dog disappeared and so did the woman, so she wasn't there for any subsequent lawsuit. I've got two lawsuits involving pit bulls going on right now um, you know attacking strangers coming to the property so the dogs no doubt are loving and sweet with their own family but sometimes it's the stranger who comes in as the target and, and you're right about the bite I mean there is a rumor that they have a locking mechanism in a jaw which is not true but the fact is when a when a pit bull bites it does and it's not just pit bulls there's a lot of other bull breeds too they have a very tenacious bite uh, and I've witnessed this with my own eyes when my own dog, Jasper, who's a black and tan coon hound, was attacked on a beach by a pit bull. And it took um, about six of us to get the pit bull off him. It took about four minutes. And I thumped the pit bull on the head with my hand very hard to make him let go. And I broke a bone in my hand. Uh, I mean, it was a real struggle. It's not like a German shepherd bite, which is, you know, the German shepherd is the number one biter in the country, uh, most frequent biter. Um, but the bites are usually of a less severe type. It's sort of a nip and run type thing, and it's painful and tears your clothes, or you get a bite in the back of your leg, but you don't get hung onto like a pit bull. So it's not the locking mechanism. It's just very powerful jaws and, you know, determination, perseverance, that they just hang on through thick and thin. And, when you think about it, well, I've wanted, Dr. Dotson, I
2: have to ask you. That. I, have, I have one more question for you, and then we're going to be running into our, our, our break Please. here. Um, for those who want to just understand signs to look for uh, that that uh, just a person who's I mean, you're a veterinary behaviorist and, and research scientist, but just for the for the average person, what are the warning signs of a dog that's that's about to get aggressive, pit bull or otherwise?
3: Well. Um, I've become expert in this because um, having had my dog attacked, when I see one coming towards me, I always uh, evaluate him and I look at him carefully. And if a dog pit bull on leash or not is walking towards you and his body's relaxed and his head's held low, if he licks his lips or looks to the side, um, you know, tails low, you know, he's in a non-threatening position. He looks a little bit like Eeyore in the house up Pooh Corner. Um, but if the dog is standing there, like proud as punch, with his chest sort of puffed out like a big barrel chest, and he's staring with staring searchlight eyes. I give those ones a wide pass.
2: All right. Dr. Nicholas Dodman, world-renowned veterinary behaviorist and research scientist. Check out his book, Pets on the Couch, Neurotic Dogs, Compulsive Cats, Anxious Birds, and the New Science of Animal Psychiatry. Doctor Dodman, thank you so much for calling. It was great to have you.
3: Thanks for having me on.
0: Appreciate it.
2: Team, we'll be right back.
0: You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Our friend, Shamant, who is a board op and producer
7: on the show here, has owned Pitbull. So I wanted to get get his take on all this stuff. What do you think of what the doc had to say, Shamant? Uh, I kind of agree with the majority of what he had to say. But um, the thing about pitbulls that most people don't understand is that uh, when they lock jaw on you, you have to... Um, Throw a bucket of water, and people, I'm all people like what bucket of water, but that's that's mainly for uh, to the, their breathing. And pits. how many pits did you have? I had two. So basically, like it's like a short. It's almost like waterboarding that simulates, yeah. you know, the, <laughs> the water, you know, gets. I mean, I
2: mean that though. Like it, it freaks them out if you pour water over yeah, their nose and their snout. Yeah, Is and that
7: and they and they let go. Uh, actually, I had one of my males uh, attack the female pit. Uh, they were in heat, and she didn't want to give him none, so uh, he attacked her, and yeah, it it, it kind of went crazy. Were they, were they okay? How many of you had? Just
2: t- I, I had, just found this out on the break, everybody. I didn't know Shaman had pit bulls, so this wasn't planned, but he told me he did, so I want to ask. How many of
7: you had? I had two. Two of them. All right. Overall, with people, were they cool, though? Were they always pretty friendly to people? Oh, yeah. They were real cool. Real cool. And did they ever go out other than each other, you told me, did they ever go after other dogs? Did you always have to watch out for that? Uh they just they just barked. Uh, they didn't really attack anybody. How big were your pits, out of curiosity? Oh, they were, were they just... were they were big. They were pretty big. They were pretty big. Like like seventy, eighty pounds kind of big or Yeah, around that, about fifty to seventy. Fifty to seventy. All right. <laughs> and and did you have them from when they were puppies? Uh mid mid size, mid size, wouldn't say puppies, but mid size and they were trained well well though. They were like right. uh house dogs and like they, they guarded the the outside area and so you would get you would get pits again you would you would adopt a pit or you would raise a pit again no problem yeah yeah uh no nah, not not now not now uh, my mom wait why not okay tell <laughs> me why <laughs> no nah, because uh it's it's a lot of work and i, I do a lot of moving around and just wouldn't be no nothing. but I, I meant from a safe from like a safety perspective and all that like that oh, wouldn't yeah. oh, you wouldn't yeah, of think course, of course if, if they're trained right and a lot of people take advantage of them you know and, and use them for fighting and and Crazy craziness, but if you if you train them right to to protect, but also be safe around people, it's it's different ways to train them. What were your pits names, by the way? Since we're talking dogs. (laughs) Juicy and and boss. (laughs) Juicy and boss. All right. Very, very good. Well, Shaman, I'm glad the team got a chance to meet you. Say hi to Team Buck.
2: Hey, Team Buck. There we go. Shaman, Shaman make sure I stay on the rails and keep the show going every day. So there you go. Uh, Shaman, thanks for joining us, man. I appreciate appreciate it. Uh, Team, uh, phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. Got some great guests in the next hour and want some of your calls, too. So light them up. We're going to get back into the politics and national security here coming up. So hour three is going to be rocking it. The Freedom Hut will return in just a few minutes.
0: You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: All right, Team Buck, welcome to Hour 3 in the Freedom Hut. Great to have you. We've got our friend Mark Krikorian on the line now. He is the Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies and a nationally recognized expert on immigration issues. Mark, great to have you. Thanks for having me. Uh, We got a lot to talk, a lot to talk about. I'm sure you're a very busy guy today. Uh, First, Trump Trump is saying the wall is going to get built before we get to the impact of the wall on illegal illegal immigration. Tell me just about how doable is building the wall. Is this something that if if
8: Trump says we're going to do this, can he actually do this? Well, sure, yeah, of course you can do it. Um, You know, it depends what you mean, of course, by the wall, how much, how much of the border. He himself has said you don't need it over all 2,000 miles because of the terrain. But the answer is sure. I mean, we have some pretty good fencing along some parts of the border. So buttressing that with more, maybe having actual, like a second level behind the original fence that's an actual, you know, concrete wall, for instance, is one thing they might do. So, I mean, the answer is yes, it's absolutely uh, feasible. And I'm certain that some substantial amount of it will, in fact, get built.
2: What do you think about those who make the argument that the wall, that it's all about visa overstays now anyway, the wall doesn't make a difference, it's a waste of time, and it's un-American? What do you say to that?
8: Well, I mean, that's several different arguments. I mean, as far as uh, the un-American parts ridiculous. We can do anything we want to to defend our country. There is a germ of truth in the first point that um, visa overstays and and job and limiting access to jobs is probably more important at this point than the wall. Or at least you get more bang for the buck. That and I've made that argument myself. That having been said, you do in fact need to improve our. Uh, controls at the border. And there's another thing that's sort of intangible is that the reason the idea of the wall resonates with so much pe- so many people is that it's a concrete, you'll pardon the pun, a concrete expression the, of U.S. sovereignty, that this is really a departure from the kind of globalist anti-border nonsense that both parties have been pushing for a long time now. So, And that's important, to make that clear, to set down that marker, uh, even if the argument, you know, even if the argument's right that it's not going to do much, and that's not correct either, in my opinion.
2: And sanctuary cities also on the docket for the Donald to tackle. What can he do there? Assuming he follows through, and it's looking like he will. How does he put pressure on sanctuary cities to uh, help uh, help enforce federal immigration law?
8: First thing they do is they tell all the sanctuary cities, and there's a lot of them, not all big ones. They tell them, "Look, cooperating with immigration is not an optional thing that you get to pick and choose. You're you're required to do this because immigration enforcement is our job, and we will make sure that if you do cooperate, the ACLU will not have grounds to sue you. Because a lot of them are, a lot of these smaller places are so-called sanctuary cities because they're afraid of being sued by the ACLU. So right there. Making that clear, most sanctuary cities will say, okay, okay, we'll work with you. The problem is going to be the bigger cities, the LA, New York, Chicago, those kind of places. And so the first thing he's going to do is cut off certain federal grant programs. So they lose millions of dollars. Those cities have already said, who cares? It's more important for us to protect illegal aliens than to protect our own taxpayers. So the question is, what does he do after that? And There's this is going to be a, you know, year or two long, one, two year long process. Uh, They're going to they're probably going to have to sue some of these jurisdictions. And then the kind of nuclear option is that if they find a jurisdiction that's just really completely ridiculously over the top, they could prosecute them criminally for harboring illegal aliens, which is a federal felony.
2: Interesting that there is this conception out there that localities, municipalities, cities, don't have, to, don't have to abide by federal immigration law. That, that is a widespread notion. Not only are you telling me that's false, but there can be criminal sanctions for large-scale flouting of immigration law by the, I would assume that would have to be some of the officials in these cities.
8: Right, city council, or the mayor, whoever the responsible person is that makes the decision. And look, it, the, the, it's important to understand what a sanctuary city is. You're not a sanctuary city, or let me put it this way, the Immigration Service does not ask Local cops to go walk in the streets asking for people's green cards. They don't even want you to do that. What that what they want is when a cop or sheriff's deputy, or whatever, arrest somebody and they book somebody in. They scan their fingerprints. You're arrested. Those fingerprints now go to Homeland Security as well as to the FBI. So if the fingerprint gets is a hit on their computer system and they say, "Look at this. Hey, we wanted this guy. We didn't know where he where he was." The East Oshkosh Police Department just got him. Send, they, they send a note to them and say, hey, if you guys aren't going to prosecute this guy, or as soon as you're done with him, please hold on to him for, uh, for us for 48 hours. We're going to come and get him. A sanctuary city gets that request and then says, nah, we're just going to let him go. That's what a sanctuary city is, defying, openly, consciously defying federal law, and that's just inexcusable.
2: Now, this claim that's out there with the Trump administration of three to five million illegals voting, I know that you, spe- uh, you specialize in immigration issues and, and we're talking the border, but what is your sense of this number or the investigation into illegals voting? Because that's really where this would be coming from, illegals voting in large numbers. Uh, where do you come down on this? Is, is there some reason
8: to believe that that is happening? Yeah, this is not our area, so, but we do know a little bit about this. And the, the, and the way I understand it is this first of all, the number is almost certainly exaggerated. It's not 3 to 5 million illegal votes, but it is some significant number of illegal votes. I mean, it's not, there was a study of the 2012 election that found more than 1 million people voting who shouldn't have. So it's not nothing, but clearly this 3 to 5 million is exaggeration. But the other point that's important is. It's not necessarily illegal aliens voting, because remember, the people who aren't allowed to vote are non-citizens in general, most of whom are legal non-citizens, people with green cards. And I think most of the illegal voting is probably legal immigrants who actually think they're allowed to vote, because they go to the DMV. Look, these guys aren't political science majors. They're just regular folks, construction workers and stuff. They go to the DMV. The DMV gives them paperwork for their license, And on there is a voter registration form. And it's like, oh, well, I guess I'm allowed to vote. It doesn't seem like it, but the American government just gave me a piece of paper, so I'll sign up for it. So my sense is the problem here is not so much a conspiracy among immigrants to vote illegally. It's an unwillingness on our part to make clear who is and is not allowed to vote. That's why all this voter ID stuff and checking, you know, proving your citizenship when you Register to vote, as some states try to do. That's why there's so much opposition to that, because the Democrats, frankly, want people to vote illegally, even though most of them are probably doing it unwittingly and wouldn't do it if somebody said, no, you're not allowed to do this.
2: So if there's an investigation by the Trump administration, it sounds like you think they're, they're going to find something. It's, I agree, with you, three to five million is too many, but it's not zero. It's not zero, <laughs> that oh, much I, it's it's not zero illegal voting, them. that much is yeah. for sure. And I think so a lot fine. of the press likes to... Pre-
8: Go ahead. Yeah, no question about it. They're going to find something. And it's not like they're going to find four people in the whole country, which is basically nothing, too. They're going to find thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who shouldn't have voted who did. And that's a pretty important thing, it seems to me.
2: How do you think Trump's doing so far with, with immigration? I know he's only been in office a few days, but he's taking some actions. Are, what are your expectations?
8: Well, I mean, it's pretty good so far, but with one big hole, in my opinion, and I've been kind of making a fuss about it for a couple of days, is that he had pledged uh, over and over again to end Obama's illegal, unconstitutional order to give amnesty to um, what they call the dreamers, illegal immigrants who came as kids. Uh, and, you know, he didn't do it right away. And, in fact, the Immigration Service is continuing to issue work permits to these illegal immigrants. And so that's, in my opinion, kind of a problem. The, uh, everything else, though, they, there's, you know, they seem to be jumping on this issue of the wall and the sanctuary cities and everything pretty quickly. So, um, you know, generally speaking, I'm pretty pleased with that one proviso that I'm just not sure why they're holding back on this what they call DACA that's the abbreviation for Obama's illegal amnesty program
2: we're speaking to Mark Ikori, and he's the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies Mark up on your website cis.org I see you've got some new immigration research here that deportations last year hit a 10-year low I'm not, I'm not supposed to believe, and I know you're certainly not making this case, but we're not supposed to believe that this is coincidental, right? The last year of Obama's presidency, all of a sudden deportations fall off a cliff. What happened?
8: Well, they've been dropping for a number of years. See, what happened is, for 20, almost 20 years, under Clinton and then Bush, there was a steady increase in deportations. And both of them, both Republican and Democrat administrations, they weren't great on immigration, but at least they were investing the money in the infrastructure to be able to deport increasing numbers of illegal aliens, mostly criminals, but just generally illegal aliens. Well, when Obama took over, that increase, that steady two-decade-long increase stopped. But it didn't drop right away, because Obama was trying to show how tough he was on enforcement, that he was reliable, and the point of that was to try to get an amnesty bill through when that failed remember that gang of eight bill from what was it now four years ago didn't uh, pass the senate but it failed in the house didn't become law obama could stop pretending and so that when that bill failed um deportations of illegal immigrants inside the country basically just dropped off a cliff
2: trump has said that he's going to focus on criminals or people who commit criminal acts in addition to their the criminality of their status uh, that people that are a, th- a threat a violent crime uh, th- those sorts of things are going to be prioritized for deportation th- to those who claim and certainly mark i'm sure you've seen this that illegal immigrants i always hear commit fewer crimes than native-born americans uh that this is an overstated problem what what number uh, what are the numbers you can give us t- uh, to give us a sense? of how serious the problem of illegal, alien, dangerous criminality really is in this country?
8: Well, let me give you a number, and that number is one, because one crime by an illegal immigrant who isn't supposed to be here is one crime too many. The idea of saying comparing the crime rate of illegal immigrants to those who are here legally or U.S. citizens is simply irrelevant, because it doesn't matter. Now there, the the fact is it's a lot more than one. Illegal immigrants are people like any others. Some are good, some are bad, some are criminal, some aren't. The fact is there are significant levels of criminality among illegal immigrants and it doesn't matter what the rate is cuz every one of those guys should be should be removed and frankly shouldn't have been here in the first place. There's been plenty of outrageous crimes, that poor girl in San Francisco who was killed several years ago uh, Kate Steinle. And there's, you know, the story after story like this. In fact, I think several of the uh, parents of people killed by illegal aliens are going to be at the event uh, in ho- at the Homeland Security Department where President Trump is going to be signing these executive orders. Um, but, you know, an important point here, Obama said the same kind of thing as you just described Trump saying that, you know, we're focusing on the worst of the worst and criminals and what have you. And any law enforcement agency is obviously going to focus on the worst offenders that you want to, you know, even if you're just a traffic cop, if somebody's driving by a school hundred miles an hour and shooting a gun out the window, that's what you're going to do. You're going to ignore everything else. But the fact is, that's not all law enforcement does. And under Obama, pretty much the only thing they did was go after rapists and murderers. But... What I'm hoping to see, and I'm pretty sure I am going to see under Trump, is they're going to do both the worst of the worst guys they're going to go after, but also have routine enforcement at the same time of just regular people who happen to be illegal aliens. If they raid a factory or raid a restaurant or whatever it is, those folks are also always liable to be deported, Um, even though they're going to be lower priority, under Obama, those people were basically had a free pass. And the government openly told them, don't worry about it. We're not even going to bother looking for you.
2: Mark Krikorian is the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. Go to CIS.org to read all their research. Mark, thank you so much. Great to have you and uh, appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Buck. Uh, team phone line's open, 888-900-3393. We will be right back.
0: The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at TheBlaze.com slash
5: radio. The Blaze Radio Network.
2: All right, Team Buck, we've got some calls up. Peter in Texas, welcome to the Freedom Hut. What's up, my man?
5: Hey, how you doing? I was calling about the, uh, the pit bull issue. I've owned a couple in my day, and wanted to say that in my experience, They have been two of the the best dogs I've ever had or ever met. Um, I like to say that they were dolphin smart. Um, However, I had to train them every day. I had to walk them every day. I had to, you know, make sure that they got their energy out every day to ensure that they were, you know, calm in front of other people and everything like that. So. I will say, as a dog lover, they are the best dogs you can own, but they're not for the fan of heart, and they're you know they're not for somebody who doesn't want to put a little work into them.
2: So there's a responsibility that you, even as someone who loves pits, that they're a big responsibility.
5: Absolutely, you gotta. They are they are loyal to you, but you gotta show them enough love to where they'll be loyal to other people as well. All right, kind of like your uh, right. caller said earlier, they're. They're kind of good with people. They're a little aggressive towards other dogs, but as long as you are that alpha, they'll be good to everybody.
2: Yeah. It's funny, you know, Miss Miss Molly has a pit bull, uh, my girlfriend. So interesting that she, her family, they, they have a pit. I, and it's, I've met, the, I've met the pit. I, it's very sweet. So
5: yeah, they're yeah. the best dogs. My fiance and dogs. Once ours, uh, we rescue dogs, and once ours, kind of, they're old and they're going to start going. And our next one's going to be a rescue pit because they are the best.
2: All right, man. Thank you very much. Uh, Shields high, Peter. Thanks for calling in from high, Texas. Have ben, day. you too. Ben in Pennsylvania. You're on the Buck Sexton Show. Hi, Buck. Thanks for taking my call. Shields high, sir. Shields high.
0: Um, so my, my question to you is about the media. Um, I um, Just real quick. So I, 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 come, I, I live in south-central Pennsylvania. It's a very conservative area. Um, however, I come from a family of mostly liberals, um, i'm proud to say i'm not one um but most of my family is and i was having a, a conversation with my father um recently um just talking about you know different news outlets um i i'm a proud member of team buck i listen to you every day on my way to school um, thank you sir yes absolutely absolutely um and you know m- my dad um, who is a liberal um He made an interesting comment to me. He said he believes, even in his eyes, that the the most honest uh, news anchors and news outlets um, are are moderate conservatives. Um, And and we were talking, you know, and and I, 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 I raised the issue about moderate liberals. My question to you is, do you believe that there is such a thing as a moderate liberal? Because, frankly, I said I don't think there is such a thing. Um, I think it's an an
2: excellent question, Ben. Uh, There is such a thing, but perhaps what you're reacting to is that moderate liberals have been overshadowed, pushed aside, and I think in many ways uh, purged from the Democratic Party Uh, there. When you look at who who runs the Democratic Party today, Uh, you look at the Obamas, uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Chuck Schumer. Uh, these are not people that find common ground with Republicans on on really anything. And certainly on the media side, uh, I I would agree that a lot of the, uh, the the anchors that you can trust to at least play it straight as anchors are center, right to right. uh, Because on the left, they, they view, they just view everything through this lens of, well, it's not that I need to be neutral. It's that, the moral position is to be left, right? So, so they can't help themselves. Right. The bias is is, is implicit. Uh, they're going to talk sure, about implicit sure. bias training. Yeah. Well, so no, that's that's. Yeah. Uh, but there are very few prominent uh, Democrats who are centrists and find common ground with Republicans in the Democratic Party. So I think you're picking up on that.
0: The Buck yeah, Sexton well, Show, you know, on the it- Blaze Radio Network.
2: Team, as you know, I'm in for Rush Limbaugh this Friday on the EIB. So 600 radio stations across the country, millions of listeners, always going to be a good time. But that means that our Freestyle Friday for this Friday is spread throughout the week. And we have a guest who would usually be a Freestyle Friday guest, but he's just making Wednesday awesome. Colin Fallenweeder. He has started more Hollywood blockbusters than your favorite A-lister, but you've never seen his face He's built a career performing the stunts too dangerous for actors and is paid to make the actions of film heroes a reality, making him Hollywood's most in-demand stuntman. He's been in dozens of major motion pictures, including Terminator, Die Hard, X-Men, Transformers, Avatar, Spider-Man. I can't even keep up with all of them. And we've got him now. Uh, Colin, thank you for calling in. Hey, you got
4: it. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it.
2: Uh, How does one become a Hollywood stuntman? Let's just start there. (laughs)
4: <laughs> um, well there's a, a a lot of different ways, but uh but for me I grew up a, a gymnast, competed in high school and college and um and I actually had always dreamed about being a stuntman. man. Um I used to practice falling down my stairs to my bedroom when, in high school just you know, just for fun. But growing up in Colorado there was no real way to, to pursue that. So um later on in life I saw like a stunt training workshop that I went to Um, I used to work for a company called Cirque du Soleil in Vegas, uh, and then just started auditioning and performing and training. And then, uh, after, after working at Cirque, I moved down to LA to, uh, to pursue in LA and I just kept, kept training, kept training fights, kept training sword work, kept training cars and, and you just kind of start from your, your base talent and then build from there.
2: So you did martial arts training on top of gymnastic stuntman training?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, if it's like a, like a full on martial arts, like big kicks tricking kind of fight, um, I'm, I'm not the guy, but, um, a, a friend of mine, what I used to work for, he, he called it Hollywood food. Like I, I've done enough training. Um, I did Taekwondo a bit. Um, I did Krav Maga a bit. I did Boston a bit. Um, and, and it's really uh, about being able to adapt your your training and your style to the style of the film. Like if you're doing a like a barroom brawl, then you got to be throwing punches like you know like a, a drunken cowboy. Um, but if it's a little bit more uh, um, a little bit more intense, a little more martial arts, then you got to you know turn turn into quick hands and, and powerful stances and stuff like that. So it's really I'm I'm good. Uh, I feel like I'm good at adapting my skills to uh, to fit the style of the film.
2: What is the most crazy stunt that you've ever had to pull? What was the movie and what was the scene?
4: Um, I, I think, uh, in, in, in about, about that stuff. I I
2: feel like, Oh, you can give me, you can give me a couple or just the first one that comes to mind, but I, I'm seeing the movie list here and there's some, there's some bonkers stuff that I'm sure you've had to get into.
4: Uh, yeah, it's true. I mean, I think, uh, just, um, uh, transformers, uh, double Shia LaBeouf on transformers, dark to the moon. And, uh, and that's, that's just crazy because you're just, uh, you're running to and from invisible robots and real explosions. Um, and so just making it through that, of course, they try to be as safe as you can, you know, but it still, still feels like a war zone. But, uh, I think, uh, the, the coolest stunt and the, one of the scariest was, a, a stunt that I did on the losers. Um, I doubled Chris Evans and, uh, on that, but on this one stunt, I was doubling the lead, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, and he's uh, on top of a shipping crane, and the bad guy throws this this switch off of off at of the end, and uh, and Jeffrey Dean Morgan's character jumps after it and saves the day. So um, we're about 150 feet up, and uh, there's a cameraman who's following me too. So we both jump off, but we're we're connected to wires. Um, so as opposed to doing 150 feet into the water. Um, we free fall most of the way. And then like the last 20 feet, uh, we have a thing called a, a descender. And uh, and then it, it stops you in a pretty rapid uh, rapid motion and, and it stops you before you, you actually hit the water. But uh, I just remember standing up there, uh, just kind of looking off the edge. And uh, I mean, I've seen the test, all the tests. We did tests with the weight bag. But uh, once they say action, it's like, all right, I'm just going. There's like no time to think. And, uh, and Have you ever... so fun doing, um, okay,
2: go ahead. I was going to ask you if if you've ever had a stunt that was set up and you were like, you know what guys, we, we got to rethink this. <laughs> this is too much.
4: Um, yeah, there's, there's time. Uh, fortunately, um, a lot of the times we get, we get rehearsals. And so in the rehearsals, you try to figure out the best way and the safest way to do things. Um, right. We, we do try to be as safe as possible. Um, but in the end, you know, you're still like if you're still falling downstairs, you're still getting hit by a car, you're still getting set on fire. And, you know, there's all protocol for that stuff. But but there is still that. But um, we do try to stay safe. But um, I, I have been fortunate that I got to ask you about epic died.
2: wipeouts, Colin. Have you ever have you ever had an epic oh, yeah. wipeout? I mean, have you ever had a, a really rough one?
4: Um, I've been pretty fortunate. Uh, I know some of my friends have had some has had some bad ones, but uh, um, I, I've been pretty fortunate with with stuff. I've never uh, I got hospitalized once. uh, Bounced my head off the ground, got got a concussion. Um, But other than that, I'm pretty good. Although I got to tell you, it's kind of kind of masochistic, but like when you're doing a fight scene. And, uh, and even though we have pads when we can, you know, and then you see, like, the bruises from the fight scene, it almost makes you feel good. It's like, I did my job. Like, I, I this is why I'm here. I did my job. And the, and the bruises kind of tell that story.
2: Are there any actors still left? You know, there used to be that old joke. People would say, well, you know, I do all my own stunts, right? And people would say that. And usually they were they were kind of mocking the the actor prototype for Hollywood. Is there anyone in this right. uh, on the scene today who's a known a known commodity who truly does do all of his or her own stunts.
4: Um, I, uh, I believe Tom Cruise is that guy. Um, really? I have had uh, a couple of my friends who have, have doubled him uh, throughout the years. And, and really they, they, they'll go in, they'll set it up. Um, but he is such a, such a pro and such an athlete that when he says he does all his own stunts, he, he definitely does. And, um, it's uh, it's actually pretty, pretty impressive because, you know, if he didn't make a career as as being, a, you know, one of the world leading actors, he could have been probably one of the best stunt guys out there.
2: Wow, that's interesting. I, I, I had no idea. Uh, action movies. We have Action Movie Friday on the show where people call in with a quote from an action movie. And I have to see if I can name it on the spot. Uh-huh. Just wondering, Collins, because you're uh-huh. you're a guy who does a lot of action in these movies. If I'm asking you for your your, your top three all time action flicks, what do you got for us?
4: Um, I would say uh, Matrix is my favorite. Um, and because I, I always believe that good stunts never make up for bad story. So if you have a bad story and then you have some amazing stunts, it's like, oh, that's an okay movie. But Matrix, that story was so well thought out, so well um, filmed, so well acted. And then the level of stunt work in there was just phenomenal. So it really like heightened um for me heighten the experience of watching the movie. Like it's such a complete movie. Uh, so I would definitely say, uh, matrix is my favorite. Um, even though it's not necessarily like an action film, uh, I love princess bride. Um, these, they have some okay. really fun sword fights in there. And some you know, it's just, it's such a classic movie and you don't think of it as an action film, but, uh, but it, it really, again, it's, it's such a good story and the stunts in there, um, heighten that. um, and then, uh, I don't know. sorry, you've given us a that couple. I see you have movie. Die Hard
2: on the list of movies that you've performed. Do you perform in the original? No, not the original Die Hard, right?
4: No, no. Um, it was a Live Free or Die Hard, uh, Die Hard 4. I actually doubled um, Justin Long in that for a couple things. And then also there was a uh, uh, guy named Sarah Um He's one of the the four... Uh, forefathers of the parkour movement, and um, and I, so I doubled him uh, in like there's a scene when he's jumping around, and and uh, and he gets killed, and uh, and so I was there helping set up the stunts. Um, he did about half of them, I did the other half, and uh, yeah, so that was fun.
0: Very I cool. At
4: Die Hard is such such like such an iconic uh, series to be part of. Like, I, I feel so honored that um that look back because you know the first Die Hard movie was. was so amazing!
2: There's been nothing else like it. Well, if I ever become actually famous, Colin, maybe one day they'll make a movie <laughs> and you can be my double, which would include a lot of sitting at desks and doing research on computers, <laughs> uh, occasionally drinking tequila at night. So I'm sure you could handle all that. But we really, hey man, we really appreciate you joining. Is there a website or some social media platforms you want to direct people to to see your work? Um,
4: mostly just the uh, IMDb. Um, yeah, it just has a a, a list of uh, of just the the films IMDb.com, dot com, Colin Fallenwater.
2: Well, what's um, the next film you're in that's coming out where you've done some work?
4: Um, I did um, a movie. I actually coordinated a movie. a sun-coordinated a movie. in South Africa. South South Africa in Cape Town called Twenty Four Hours to Live, and it's a Ethan Hawke is a lead, um, and that was phenomenal experience. and And that movie should be coming in around september i believe the release releases um all means, like the next the next big thing
2: eagerly anticipated colin fallen am i getting your name right that's uh, close uh fallen wider but i'm not falling wider all right i was close colin fallen wider i'm glad we got that right the, the last time thank you very much sir great to have you stay safe keep doing cool stuff and team we'll be right back thank you so much buck thank sexton. sexton dispensing the truth
0: on the Blaze Radio Network
2: Very interesting the daily caller here cites one of the uh, st- one of the possible studies that the Trump administration was referring to with this claim of non-citizens voting very important we talked to Mark Recorrin about this and as you heard before it's not necessarily illegal aliens who are voting although well, that's possible too but it's per- it could be permanent residents green card holders who don't have citizenship but can stay here legally uh, forever. And they may be voting. And according to this piece in the DailyCaller.com, somewhere between 38,000 and almost 2.8 million non citizens voted in the 2008 election, according to a study published in Electoral Studies Journal in 2014. It's a couple of professors from Old Dominion University. They said that some non citizens participate in U.S. elections and this participation has been large enough to change meaningful election outcomes, including electoral college votes and congressional elections. I just have to say, if our precious system of government is so uh, fragile that the left is going to advocate on the one side that some unflattering emails stolen from a member of Hillary Clinton's inner circle that are published – Change the voting, uh, the the voting pattern in Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania or any number of other states. And so there must be a bipartisan congressional investigation into this. And it's all about national security and our fundamental, fundamental democratic principles. If all of that is true, then isn't it also true that we should be willing to look into in a bipartisan fashion for. The purposes of sustaining our system of government and making sure that we have the freest and fairest elections possible. Isn't this something we should look into? Well, let's disprove if it's if it's not 2.8 million. And let's just also be clear. They say that the authors of this study said that the number of non-citizen voters in 2008 range from over 38,000 to at the minimum to 2.8 million, 2.8 million at the maximum. This is what I said to you when we started. I'm sure there are in the tens of thousands of voters who shouldn't vote, just based on the numbers. And we should try to address that as best we can. I don't know if it's two or three million. I know Trump said at the absolute uh, outer edge was five million. But this isn't worth our time? When you think about what the government does spend money and time on, I would offer to you that elections... And the sanctity of one person, pardon me, one citizen, one vote should be, again, one of those issues that receives bipartisan support, that we should all be willing to do what is necessary to protect the integrity of our electoral process. This seems to me to be pretty straightforward. I I don't really see why there's such a uh, such difficulty here. Um, why do the Democrats seem to hate the notion of finding out who's on the rolls that shouldn't be on the rolls? This could this could be a very big issue uh, if, if they're able to really prove that even let's say it's what, what happens if we find out that 100,000 people voted in this last election who shouldn't have voted, which isn't an unthinkable number. And we found that, as Mark said before, from the Center for Immigration Studies, it's primarily people that weren't even operating in bad faith. Wouldn't wouldn't that change the whole discussion over voter ID and all of that would be framed in a different way and one that would not be favorable to the democrats who view non-citizens as a source of support because non-citizens are more likely to need state support and more likely to view a large government with many assistance and welfare programs as in their as in their interest and also, is, the Democratic Party has become effectively an, an open borders party in all but name. Right, They, they want to r- regulate the inflow of everybody into the country, but everybody can come based on the Democrats' belief. All right, I'm, I'm running out of time. We'll have to hit more of this tomorrow. Uh, I am here tomorrow in the Freedom Hut of, at the usual time. Friday, I'm in for Rush 12 to 3 on the EIB. And so until tomorrow, my friends, when we'll do sort of a Freestyle Thursday mix with a normal Thursday, Shields High.
0: The Buck Sexton Show.
5: Only on the Blaze Radio Network.